Welcome to Game Changers, a video game industry podcast brought to you by Convoy. We're a firm that invests in companies driving the future of the gaming industry. In this podcast, we will go beyond the gaming experience and highlight founders within the gaming space whose businesses and thought leadership sit at the frontier of the industry. I'm Jason Chapman. I'm Josh Chapman. I'm Jackson Vaughn. And we're the founders of Convoy. Each month, one of us is going to bring you a candid and open conversation with leaders in this industry. Who are these game changers? What have they built? And what are they doing now? Let's dig in. All right. Today, we're chatting with Kuhn Gao. Uh, we'll be taking a dive into Kuhn's personal and professional background, what he's working on today, and how he sees the gaming landscape evolving. For those who don't know, Kuhn Gao co-founded Crunchyroll, which is the world's largest destination for anime and manga, with more than 50 million registered users and over 5 million paying subscribers. It was acquired by Warner Media and AT&T in 2018, and most recently sold to Funimation, which is owned by Sony, in 2021 for $1.2 billion. Kuhn, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. We love to start out every podcast by asking our guests, what are you playing right now? Ooh, I don't have a lot of time to play games, but uh, the two most recent games I played is uh, Dune Spice Wars okay. and Triangle Strategy on the, uh, on the Switch. Triangle Strategy? I have not played Triangle Strategy. What, what is that game? It's like a turn-based RPG game. Okay. Uh, it's, it's great. I'm all about the turn-based RPGs. Okay, I love that. I love that. By the way, our whole team is hoping that you'll eventually join us for some Age of Empires gaming sessions. That's the the game of choice right now at Convoy, and so we're hoping to get to get you and a few others to join in with us. So maybe we can get you into that strategy strategy life with us. Sounds good. Okay, awesome. I'd love to hear. You know, what was your life like um, at the earliest stages? You know, what made Kuhn today who he is? Well, I guess to start off in the very beginning, I was born in uh, Beijing. Until the age of eight, then moved to Houston, and then L.A. for middle and high school, and then onwards. My uh, parents were, uh, one, one was a teacher, the other was a scientist, so I would say my upbringing was quite uh, academic. If I was going to look at, you know, 16-year-old Kuhn, what would that, what that guy be like? Definitely not a troublemaker. <laughs> Love it. So the high school I went to was a little bit different. It was a magnet program called the uh, California Academy of Math and Science. The program's got about 200 students. So, you know, I did all the uh, usual overachiever stuff like joining journalism and student council and uh, the math club, et cetera. Oh, I love that. Anyone who wants to go into journalism, it's, it's, a, it's a tough feat in today's era, uh, staying on top of the news. So love that from an early age. All right. So moving forward, you graduated from UC Berkeley. Um, in electrical engineering. I think you also had a focus in computer science. And then you eventually went to get your PhD as a candidate from Carnegie Mellon. Did you have an idea what you wanted to do with your career when you were going to college? Or are you like the, uh, I would say the vast majority of kids who go off to college and have no idea what they want to end up doing? I honestly didn't have a clue. I love it. But my dad had a PhD from Mayo. And uh, back in China, he was also a, a doctor. So he was an MD and PhD. And so, you know, I always thought if I could just be half of what he had, either a doctor or a PhD, then that would be pretty good for me. And I can't stand blood. So I said, well, <laughs> PhD it is. And uh, this was around like the early 90s, really, when I began to really love computers. 
around I think it was like 1990. My my dad bought like a 386 at the time, which I started fiddling with that, and ever since then I just loved engineering and computers. And so I figured, you know, let, let's go into engineering, computer and computer science. But uh, after getting into the PhD program and and at Carnegie Mellon, I didn't really have a have a clue what what to do be, besides research. There's a lot of freedom, but it's also kind of hard, right? Because you, you, it's a pretty specialized field when you go into a PhD. And so you're kind of seeing the same 50 people in all the research conferences. And what you're doing potentially has a lot of impact on people, but very rarely is you know, academia commercialized. And so I really wanted to do something that could impact millions of people today. Got it. And that kind of makes sense, too, with the, kind of the drive towards journalism at an early age. All right. So in 2004, uh, you interned at Hot or Not and later returned to work there. I would love to dive into what drew you initially to work there and maybe also just explain what Hot or Not was at the time for our listeners. Sure. So I think the backdrop here is in Berkeley, I was part of the electrical engineering computer science major. And in that major, there's an honor society called uh, HKN or Ada Kappa Nu. And it so happened that the founders of Hot or Not, about 10 years prior, were themselves HKN uh, officers. And I would say this is around like 2000 to 2004, where startups is not what you would think of today as startups. It, it was certainly off, very much off the beaten path. And uh, for more context, Hot or Not is a website uh, where you would upload your picture and then you would uh, send it out into the into the internet, and then strangers would kind of vote on your picture on a scale of one to ten, either hot or or or, or not. And uh, on the back end, you know, once you get the ratings, you could actually there's a dating aspect to it, like a dating service. So it's it's kind of like Tinder, but on the on the on the web browser. And uh, uh, what was interesting about Hot or Not is you know that we we pioneered a lot of things in social that uh, you kind of see today, like virtual items and and things like that. But knowing Jim and James, they basically said, hey, why don't you for the summer come join us at Hot or Not and try to build stuff? And uh, whatever you build, you can push it out to to users immediately. And I I, I thought, why not? That's amazing. I love that you just phrased that as kind of like the precursor to Tinder, right? And I hadn't really thought about it that way. But in a lot of ways, that was what it was. Well, I think there are quite a lot of companies that you might not think today that drew inspiration from interacting with Hot or Not, the company, as well as a number of folks that used to work at Hot or Not have gone on to build their own startups. We, we like to jokingly call ourselves the, you know, like the Hot or Not Mafia, kind of like the PayPal Mafia. I love it. But as one example, Chad and Steve from YouTube came by to Hot or Not. This was before they launched. And uh, initially, YouTube was a video dating site, and they modeled it kind of after Hot or Not, but you would put up your video testimonials or whatever. And uh, th- that, that kind of kicked them off into becoming you know, a video platform. That's wild. I did not know that. Uh, the Hot or Ma- Not Mafia, a new phrase for me. I love that. Um, so in between your two stints at Hot or Not, you co-founded another company, Frapper, um, a social mapping service, which ultimately had you know over 10 million monthly unique users, which was, if I, I want to make sure I get this correct, was acquired by Playshul, which was later acquired by Slide and later acquired by Google. So we're just going to make the jump and say Frapper was acquired by Google. What was the catalyst behind this? And obviously, this was a very successful outcome for you in a very short time frame. Yeah, I think that left a, a very strong impression on me. 
what it, it kind of taught me was if you can if you can hack something together and you can just build it and you can just throw it out into the wild and people would hopefully use it. And so that kind of always stuck with me. And uh, I just had that itch to build and have people use use something. And uh, my, my research at uh, Carnegie Mellon was in databases, specifically like multi-core, multi-threaded optimization of databases among multiple cache hierarchies and, and all that. But that's not something that you can just write code and then users would use immediately. And so I wanted to scratch that you know user user itch. And so one of the first things that I worked on after also recruiting one of my uh, one of my friends from from Berkeley days, was we wanted to make a a mapping service, specifically a mapping service to map your friends. So Frapper Friend Mapper is kind of the the, the reason it is called that. Um, and what what enabled that was uh, you know we were just hacking away, and uh, if you've been to Pittsburgh in the winter, it's quite lonely <laughs> and. Uh, it just so happened that Google Maps launched maybe like a year prior. And then around that time, right when we were starting to hack, they released the Google Maps API. And so we said, well, why not make a map where anyone can create a map really easily and uh, claim a map and then ask their friends to put the pins onto the map instead of themselves. And so we created this mapping service. We shared it with our friends. They added themselves to the map. And immediately you can see you know, where all your friends were. What we kind of didn't expect was that we were just solving a problem for ourselves that it would take off uh, so rapidly. What what ended up happening was back then most of the social engagement on the internet was through like forums and chat and 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 IRC, and uh, these forums would 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 have users that are all over the internet. They don't know where their users are, and so they they would all use our mapping service to find out where all their members are, and so. Piggybacking off of existing social groups was kind of how Frapper took off so quickly to 10 million uniques. What was the most random or interesting group of people that leveraged the service? Uh, I think off the top of my head, it's probably like the grandma crocheting clubs. (laughs) I love that. Okay, so then you, you you started this, and then you quickly grew, and then you sold it uh, roughly around a year later. Was that kind of a shocking event for you? Obviously, you said you started this as something you just wanted to use personally. You sold that. Hopefully, that got a little money in your pocket. Were you kind of hooked at that point to entrepreneurship, and you thought, hey, there's no chance I'm going to go to VMware now. I'm going to keep going on this train. A- absolutely. So this was about a year and a half into my PhD my parents said, "Well, great, you you sold you sold your company. You've got that out of your system. Uh, hey, go back and finish the PhD." I, I was like, uh, "I don't know. This kind of just uh, was an enabler in in, in a sense." And um, I think it it kind of proved to me and and to my parents to some degree that startups was a viable thing. And it just so happens that Frapper was acquired by by Slide, which was the company that Max founded. And so uh, I joined Slide in. 2006, and then started working uh, at at Slide to integrate the Frapper service into their social widgets. Got it. So you were integrating Frapper with Slide. And then again, you decided to launch Crunchyroll in about 2006, sort of as a side hustle. Can you talk to me where the idea for Crunchyroll came from and why you wanted to even start spending time on this right after sort of, I think that epic sprint probably to, to build Frapper. That was probably not a, uh, let's call it, relaxing year for you. 
tell me where this kind of passion came from and why you wanted to start Crunchyroll. Well, after we moved to San Francisco, and, and, and I, when I say we, I mean myself and my uh, my co-founder, James. James and I have, have always been you know anime fans because we all watched it in, in college and continued to watch it afterwards. When we, when we get off work, we would just watch the latest episode of Naruto or Bleach or whatever the anime was. And at the time, there wasn't really a great way of watching anime. So either you could watch it on YouTube, but because there's a 10-minute limit on YouTube in terms of video size, you basically had to like look for episode 13, part one of three, episode 13, part two of three, and, and organization was pretty bad. And then separately, if you wanted to get the latest episodes, you had to either wait for someone to upload it, load it to YouTube, which was kind of a random thing, or you would have to go download it from a torrent tracker. And the torrent tracker is kind of the latest in, in which uh, people who are so passionate about anime, they would translate it themselves from Japanese into English with subtitles, and then they would upload the, the anime. And so if you wanted to watch the latest, which we did, you basically had to go download it from a torrent. And as you as you know, with internet and downloads and torrents, you're also uploading at the same time. And so it could be hours before you know you complete your 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 download. And so we were like, well, this kind of sucks. Uh, we're, we're just sitting here twiddling our thumbs and waiting. So, uh, so you know, why don't we do something about it? And so in our, in our spare time, we just hacked together a website that allowed users to upload anime and then allow, uh, organized it in a consistent way and then uh, shared it with our, with our friends. And again, it was, the inspiration was kind of like solving a problem of, uh, of our own. I love that. Um, and for some of our listeners who might not be as familiar with anime or manga, can you explain the genres at a high level and maybe even the difference between them? So manga is really just comic, but it's it's the Japanese word or the Asian word for, for, for comic. So it's a little bit different from the West. In the West, you have these very colorful, very elaborate design pages uh, that doesn't have a lot of pages, but it's it, it looks amazing. In in Japan, the uh, manga or the comics are all black and white, and they're all pencil and and and, and hand drawn. And so th- it takes a lot less work to make a panel of manga because it's it's just black and white. And so there will be thousands and thousands of creators who can who draw manga. Uh, in Japan, these comic books start off as a collection of multiple manga stories. Each manga story is like 10, 20 pages, and each book is like a phone book. It's like 200, 300 pages. And so you've got 20 stories within each uh, volume, and these volumes will come out every week. Now, what's interesting about that is it means that every week you're reading up to 20, 30 stories within one of these comic magazines. Now, what's unique, and I think the internet folks would appreciate this now, is that there is there's usually a card at the back of these magazines, and the card would say, "Hey, which story did you like?" And you would check it off, and you would mail it, send it in the mail, and and then the publishers would get that data, and then from there, they're basically crowdsourcing to figure out what is the best story that they're publishing, and this allows them to introduce new stories along the way, and so you've got this amazing process of uh, of analog crowdsourcing where the most popular stories would bubble up to the very top. And once they bubble up to the top, then 
someone who wants to make animation, who wants to invest in making an animation, which is cost millions of dollars, would have the conviction to say, you know what, this this comic has sold incredibly well or has a large readership. I'm willing to invest to make this into anime. And I think that system is the reason why Japanese anime and, and, and manga has been so popular uh, and, and so well received is that there's this crowdsourcing mechanism uh, to filter the best content. That's amazing. There were plenty of other people attempting to pursue opening up the anime market to the West and Crunchyroll really stood out. Is there any other thing that you would kind of add and tack onto that as that was our main you know, competitive moat that we had other than just the approach you took to, to opening up the Japanese market? Yeah, I'd like to think that uh, it was really a lot of luck and uh timing okay. <laughs> uh and uh just uh, systemic things that were that it didn't look like on on paper they would be something that would be favorable but was kind of in 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 our favor at the time so the backdrop is we 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 launched a site and it got a lot of users because free anime why not easier viewing like more accessible why not so everyone used it so audience acquisition wasn't really our, our our biggest problem we had two problems one was how do you get the content which you know we didn't know but the only thing we could do was go to japan knock on doors and try to talk to people and two was can we make these anime fans into paying subscribers at the time we didn't know that was that was possible but in hindsight it was clearly possible. But I think what really helped us was we raised money in 2008 and you can imagine right you know at the you know beginning of 2008 and the middle of 2008 there was the whole financial crash and uh things were pretty scary at the time. Now for us that means tightening our belts and uh doing as much as we can to lengthen our runway which is something that I think a lot of entrepreneurs right now are probably going through that exercise or should be. Uh but for for us, you know, we were we were obviously very very scared of you know are we going to last and, and and live through this? Now, what we didn't realize at the time was that whatever was happening to us uh, was impacting our competitors way more. And our competitors at the time was physical distribution. So back when Funimation didn't have a digital business, it was only selling home video, which is DVDs of of anime. And so for them. They had all this co- physical cost, all of this cost structure that uh, was much harder to deal with in these um, recession times. And so I think that allowed us to kind of grow, kind of like uh, mice when the you know when when the meteor hits the hits the earth and there was dinosaurs and then the mice were kind of scurrying around. Uh, we were kind of the we were kind of the mice. So it, it gave us time to kind of uh, grow into into ourselves and into the business because building audience, building brand, acquiring content does you know take time. And and during this process, you know, you're building, right? And every every entrepreneur, and myself included, you know, having launched a firm uh, with my co-founders, you have your low points, and there are times when you think, "Hey, this might not work out." Do you mind telling us a little bit about, you know, maybe that that moment that sticks out to you, and what the circumstances kind of surrounding that time for you were, and and how you got through it? Yeah, I think for us, that was pretty early. It was like in December of 2007. I still remember it pretty vividly, which was, it was Christmas, uh, around Christmas time, and our servers were blowing up, but there wasn't, there wasn't a way to monetize video streaming. We didn't have a subscription. There wasn't really ad monetization as you have now. And so we were maxing out our credit cards because the bandwidth bills were, you know, 10 times higher than what they are now, 20 times higher. And um, right around this time was when uh, companies started noticing us 
they started sending cease and desist and making legal threats. Uh, obviously, we complied with you know DNCA requests and takedowns, but we had no idea what we we're doing. We we're just engineers. We had no clue about any of the legal stuff, and we, we would just be looking up what is copyright infringement or or something. <laughs> and 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 so <laughs> we it was a pretty tough time because we're like, well, we don't want to get sued. We we don't want to like lose all our stuff. So what what do we do? And uh, I remember around December we had a pretty tough set of you know days where we would just be getting uh, these legal threats, not not actual like 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 um, lawsuit, but just a, a threat of a lawsuit. And we just said to ourselves, okay, well, should we just turn everything off now, or should we just keep going? Um, I think ultimately we we kind of decided. Uh, that we just we were going to keep going. That uh, this was really a, a unique, op- uh, an amazing opportunity, and we kind of wanted to see it through to to the end. And uh, until it's finished, it's 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 not done, and we're going to put everything we have into it and kind of just go step by step. But I, I think for some reason or other, we always had a almost a religious conviction that we weren't going to fail, and we were just going to try everything and anything possible to to succeed. And uh, and we just kept you know kept at it. So obviously you, you were you know very successful in building Crunchyroll, uh, you and your co-founder, and you guys absolutely knocked it out of the park. What was, would you say, your biggest misstep as CEO at Crunchyroll? What was the, the time you look back and you're like, man, I wish I could go back and not have made that decision? Oh, I think there are plenty of mistakes. As a <laughs> first-time founder, you're kind of uh, learning on the job. I think it's really hard to say, you know what, I'm going to look back and say, there's something I missed. I should have done something different. I, I really think that, you know, when those decisions are made at the time, you're you're going to make the best decision you can with the data you have. And uh, you're going to just have to live with it. Regret isn't something that I think for me exists. If you think that you made the best decision at the time with the data that you have. Now, if you didn't make the decision, best decision you have with the data you had at the time, then that's kind of when you would you know, re- regret your decision. So I would say as founders, you really just need to trust your instinct. And, and for me, my instinct was uh, f- much more uh, data-driven because of my you know, uh, academic and science background. And I would just always try to say, let's look at the data, let's make the best decision we have with, uh, with the data that we have. Now, each founder operates differently. But I would say, really trust your gut and uh, and and go from there. I love that. Obviously, you know, you guys eventually decided to sell to Warner Media and AT and T. What led you to that decision at the time, and what was the catalyst to be like, hey, this is now the time for for us to um, partner up with a larger group? Yeah, for us, it was we had you know checked all the boxes, and uh, we we were basically streaming. I don't know, like ninety percent of anime coming out of Japan. Uh, we were growing our own physical distribution business. We had events. We were making original content. Uh, we were doing basically everything. Now, what you know, what we were looking for though was partnership, which was how do we get on television? Uh, how do we have a much bigger uh, merchandising business? And uh, how how do we do all the physical things that would make this a, a real three sixty play? And at least at the time, uh, on paper, it seemed like a great idea that Warner. Uh, was a, an amazing fit. They owned a Cartoon Network. They themselves have one of the premier comic book properties in DC. Uh, they were, you know, very aware, you know, very knowledgeable about the kids' space, and so it just uh, made a lot of sense uh, on paper. 
the goal for us was to to be able to have all of this entire you know 360 capability, not just in the digital, which we were amazing at, but also in the in the physical. Got it. Got it. Um, and then obviously, you you know, you had to make a tough decision to, you know, shift out of being, you know, the CEO and then the general manager um, to more of an advisory role for Crunchyroll in 2018. Talk to us through that process for you and how you made that decision and, and how maybe it was hard for you to let go of, you know, your creation. Yeah, for me, I think what it came down to was, do I see myself doing this, building this business for the rest of my life? And uh, if I didn't, uh, which I didn't, then it's not a question of if, it's a question of when. And so it's just when is the right point for, for the transition. Now, uh, prior to the you know the Warner acquisition, uh, I already had an internal plan uh, and, and timeline towards my exit. And uh, I think what set off that timeline for me was, was really uh, having done everything I wanted to do. Uh, essentially, at that time, Crunchyroll was you know, streaming 90% of anime that's on air. Uh, we had at that time negotiated a deal where we basically were the agent of Funimation. We were buying content on their behalf. They had stopped licensing content, period. We got access to all their catalogs. So at the time, Crunchyroll was unified and, and had basically the best possible offering of anime, period. We had basically done everything and I had done everything I wanted to. I wanted to do. Uh, now, later on, what ended up happening was after that deal ended, Sony uh, liked the, the partnership so much, they decided, okay, we need to own this Crunchyroll asset. And uh, it was really, who cared about anime more, Warner Media or Sony? And clearly, Warner Media, in the middle of its own transition, uh, didn't care about anime. And so that kind of was what led to the eventual merger and and now kind of uh, Crunchyroll again reuniting all of essentially anime under one brand and one service. Got it. Got it. And uh, I remember talking to you in 2019 and you were sort of at the tail end of, you know, you just stepped down um, from being, you know, the, the head of Crunchyroll. Um, and you said, you're, you know, hey, I'm, t- I'm Jason, I'm taking a little time uh, just to, to think through what I want to do next. Uh, you didn't take very long because then you launched a new company in 2020, GGWP, which for those who don't know, stands for Good Game Well Played. That year, you raised about $12 million for, in seed money for it. The company's mission is to strengthen friendships, grow communities, and bring gamers together in a positive way. Would love to hear what was the specific driver or experience that inspired you to solve the issue of negativity and kind of bad experiences in gaming? Yeah, well, first of all, I was actually hoping to take a little bit longer time and was hoping to do a bit of travel, uh, you know, in 2020, which didn't materialize for one reason or another. <laughs> and uh, I was, you know, trapped at home along with uh, all of my friends. This was around like April, May, June of 2020. And, uh, you know, we were just playing video games because you can't can't meet up in person, you can't do anything. And we realized at the time that everyone else was just like us. They were all coming online, playing video games because no one can go out. And uh, what ended up happening was that also amplified the uh, negativity in gaming. It felt like the space was just getting more and more negative. And so we said to ourselves, okay, well, what's being done to kind of solve this? Like, you don't want to play a, a game with friends and 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 match uh, with another team, and then all, all, all game, you deal with name-calling or harassment or bullying or cheating or griefing or inting or all those kinds of things. And uh, being gamers and wanting to 
uh, have a more positive gaming ecosystem for everyone, we we started talking to our friends who are uh, like the founders of Riot, the founders of Twitch, and asking them, hey, wh- what it, what is your best practice? Like, what are you doing to tackle this problem? And what we found was that all of these things that were were big problems, uh, they're they're all, they're not really the the topmost priority because the topmost priority is still to ship a game, right? And so uh, once you ship a game, then you have to deal with all of these things. But by that time, a lot of these things are kind of growing so quickly and, and out of proportion, it's kind of too too late to, to deal with it. Uh, and the solutions are all kind of uh, local solutions. Each company would have its own bespoke thing for each game. And so we thought, well, you know what? We, we want to take a more holistic approach, a more global approach. We want to provide tools to games and to studios so that they can have these capabilities from day one when they launch. And that's kind of how we started. Got it. And I, and I know that something kind of in tangent to this is you've talked about, and you, we, we've spoken about this, you want to make the world a smaller place. Obviously, that is in direct conflict with kind of the explosion of technology that is providing the exact opposite value prop of making the world a much more open place, um, giving you access to talk to people in just about every corner of the world. How do you think we approach that? How do we make the world a smaller place in games, and spe- specifically in gaming? And you know, what, why is that a core mission for you? Yeah, so I, I think when I think about a smaller place, I don't I don't mean like a you know less people or less connected. What I'm actually meaning is more connected, meaning we're we're shrinking the physical distance between people. So back to Crunchyroll and the anime example, you know, 50 years ago, Japan made anime and that was the end of it. No one can watch anime outside of Japan, um, and now people can watch anime the same minute it comes out in you know 30 different languages and uh, everyone can appreciate japanese culture and uh, the medium of anime animation even more um and i i like to think that that's what the internet really brings hopefully can bring at the end of the day is it is making the world a smaller place in the sense that i i can now game with other people from halfway around the world and that physical distance doesn't really matter doesn't really matter as much and i think what's really compelling about gaming is that before people would view gaming as oh you're going to go play games okay that's cool but now games have become really a social endeavor like instead of me having to go out and hang out with my friends i can just play games with my friends and the game is the medium for social interaction and i think i hope that we see more and more of that now with social interaction there's obviously you know good social interaction and bad social interaction uh, the challenge right now is in, in in the industry, there's not really a standard. There's not really a best practice. There's not really something that says, you know what, even though there's no speed signs, we shouldn't speed, right? And so the hope is that we can use technology to bring forth some of those things so that the community can help uh, set those uh, rules, set those uh, speed limits so that everyone who joins communities and plays games and are social with each other kind of knows up front okay, this is good, this is bad, or I shouldn't do this because others don't think this is good. And it's interesting you talk about you know community. And, and I think this is something that I've thought a lot about in, in games and context of also in, in, you know, in person. You know, when I think about my community of people, right? Um, I typically don't think of you know, all the Discord servers that I'm a part of um, where I'm, I'm chatting with you know, people all across the world. I, I typically think of people that are in person with me and something that I think that is fascinating that you're trying to attempt to solve is with GGWP is there's a negative perception that you perceive of me. But when I'm online under a gamer tag, and if I'm rude to somebody in the lobby, there is no cost to me. 
there really isn't a cost. I just can quickly exit and jump into the next lobby. And so something I would love to hear your thoughts on is in an age where we're so everything is so accessible and there's so there's not a need for commitment. How do you get people to act and 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 treat each other well when there isn't really that cost to the person if they behave poorly online? And I think that is something that gaming is trying to solve. And I think you guys are at the the, the tip of the spear on this one. Yeah, I think it's a very multifaceted question. And we certainly don't have all the answers, obviously. But um, I, I think right now, the, the, the challenge here is it's kind of the wild, wild west, right? And part of it is is by design. Like if you have a game where you allow complete anonymity and you allow people to do whatever they want, then some bad actors are going to show up. And uh, the, the challenge there isn't that, you know, like these bad actors show up. It's that when these bad actors show up and do something, maybe because it's fun for them or maybe because, you know, they, they enjoy it, others kind of see that, right? And if others see that and they say, wait a minute, you know, I'm here playing this game because I just got off work and I have an hour to play this game. And then someone just calls me a name or cheats in this game and it ruins my experience. And, and I complain about it and, and nothing happens. Uh, because, you know, when we look at the data, like 90% plus of player reports are just dropped on the floor because there's no good AI system that handles that, which we, we've built. Then now I'm going to be, you know, triggered or I'm going to be tilted or I'm going to be toxic because I'm I'm seeing that there's no consequence to someone else's action. Why should there be consequences for, for me, right? So I think some of that is building and 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 putting up the, the, the walls or the fences to make sure that people understand that in these systems, there should be consequence, right? If you if you behave badly and others report you, something should happen, right? A part of it is is to you know actually to to reform the player who's doing something bad. But the other part, maybe more importantly, is to show everyone else, hey, this is what the community is, uh, stands for. This is what we think the rules are in this community, and this is what we want to um, administer. Now, with communities today, that's administered in a very human way. It's a moderator says, hey, you're out of line, get out of here, kind of a thing. But we're trying to look at the data and to build systems that really amplify the capability of moderators and communities to be able to provide those uh, safeguards for uh, for themselves, for their community. And this extends not to just to gamer tags, but also to, I'd say, Twitter profiles and any other sort of form of social media. Do you think it would be beneficial to bridge this gap to sort of force better behavior because there is a consequence is that everything is tied to an actual person, not just to a uh, anonymous tag, which could be anywhere in the world. Yeah, that, that's an interesting question. I think uh, some of the data that we've seen, and uh, for example, some countries, they require a, a citizen ID, if you will, in order to play games. And that ID is kind of tied to the gaming experience. If you look at uh, Facebook, that's pretty much mostly real identity. So South Korea has like the the citizen ID uh, as an example, and uh, their toxicity for their games uh, is not any different from games that don't have that have a you know anonymous ID. So I, I think, uh, and if you look at Facebook and Twitter, there's plenty of toxicity there, but for different you know different reasons. So I, I think having it just tied to the person as an identity isn't necessarily going to solve everything. It might for some uh, for some things. Um, I think what's more important is having like a reputation that's tied to the identity. The identity itself can be anonymous, but if there's a reputation tied to your identity, tied to your actions, and people can see that uh, reputation, which is something that we have like a reputation score, 
then people can see, okay, this person is a positive contributor. This person uh, is is not. Maybe that community doesn't appreciate or like the way that I'm talking. Not because I, I'm doing it purposely, but because I just don't know that in that community, what is the social expectation, right? And so that expectation isn't really set upfront or or reinforced. And I think a lot of times these problems can be solved if. Others in the community tell people, "Hey, uh, this thing that you're saying—that's、uh, not not really、uh, appropriate," or "Hey,、uh, this behavior is not appropriate." And a lot of people would be like, "Oh, okay, I didn't realize that because I grew up、uh, with friends who love to just riff on each other or whatever." That makes total sense. This is the, the the way that people are choosing to spend their time more and more, and you know, in an era where. Political tensions are high between certain geos, especially you know with Russia and the United States, as well as China and the United States. I think this poses an opportunity for gaming culturally to be a glue in a tough political time. How would you encourage gaming entrepreneurs, and how would you approach this if you were attempting to find more of a unifier between those regions rather than continued divide, which seems to be growing,、um, especially between you know. China and the CCP in the United States. Yeah,、um, I don't think there's any easy answers there. I think there's、uh, a lot of you know geo geopolitics at play. Really, principally, are we、uh, continuing down a、uh, a unipolar world where it's、uh, primarily Western U- U.S. led,、uh, or are we going down a multipolar world where it's going to be U.S. and China? I think that's going to have to play out in the next、uh, you know decades.、Uh, what what I would say is that. You're absolutely right. Gaming does provide a medium for that communication、uh, because the languages are clearly very different, and it's difficult for us to interact with China because they don't speak English and we don't we don't speak Chinese. Now,、uh, the interesting part is, I think some of this has already been replayed in the past. In the early,、uh, you know, 1980s, Japan was this,、uh, you know, rising power, and that was you know kind of dominating everything. And、uh, some of the discourse was actually same at the time. Now, if you look at anime,、uh, Japan had this unique. Art form of their own that they started exporting, and then over time, people come to appreciate a lot about Japanese culture and、uh, people just by watching anime and being exposed to to anime, and then later on to broader Japanese culture. I absolutely think gaming can serve that purpose as well, and I think China is really just beginning to figure out its own domestic game production, if you will. And and, and if you look at、uh, what they've been able to do, they've Really been able to accelerate their own domestic game production to the point where、uh, you're starting to see actual games that are exported out of China that have become global successes. We're going to see a lot more of that in in the coming years, and hopefully that will serve as a medium to kind of start、uh, you know bridging、uh, bridging communications. No, I love that. I love that.、Um, and for for listeners, I was actually born in Taiwan, and so I'm interested in. You know, finding ways that we can bridge this gap、uh, culturally between between the two, because I think there's a lot of great things、um, that you can learn from both regions, right?、And、there's some great art form both from the West and the East that should be enjoyed by、uh, their counterparts, which is which is fantastic. All right, so looking looking towards the future of games, you know, right now it's a 200 billion dollar industry. There's over three billion people playing. Where do you think we're going to be at the end of this recession? Whether it's a three, five-year, ten-year、uh, downturn, you know, where do you think gaming will be as an industry? Well,、uh, I like to think that、uh, because I'm, I'm, you know, in the industry that、uh, things are going to be positive, continue to be positive, continue to grow.、Uh, I do think that gaming and entertainment and media in general are fairly, you know, recession-proof because、uh, they are a great alternative to. 
go physically going out, right? And I think gaming has only become more and more immersive uh, to the point where you can have really immersive experiences even in in your in your own couch there's a possibility for that to be just you know as revolutionary as the internet and then later on mobile as a platform to onboard a lot more gamers into a new business model and the business model being now gamers can have true ownership of the things that they do within their game i, I do think that some of the most interesting companies are born in in recessions because entrepreneurs and um startups are absolutely the most uh, scrappy, the most entrepreneurial, and they're going to be the ones who are going to uh, come out of it uh, with you know new innovations. And uh, to close us out here today, and thank you so much, Kuhn, for for taking the time to to be with us. I always love asking this question, which is, you know, what piece of content have you consumed, whether it's a book, a movie, a article, um, in the last year that you would tell me and all of our listeners that before the year is out, you have you have to consume this piece of content. I think it would probably be the three-body problem. It's a science fiction written actually by a by a Chinese author. It's probably the most accomplished uh, Chinese science fiction author uh, ever. the The book is really a uh, if you love sci-fi, if you love hard sci-fi, it's probably on the order on the order or scale of um, Arthur C. Clarke, and uh, it's being adapted into live action and animation and all this, all, all this other stuff. Uh, but I think uh, some of the concepts, very high concept, are, are really you know m- mind blowing. Um, and uh, there's a lot of you know space exploration and what should humanity do when you're when you're in space? How should we think about uh, humanity as a multi planet, multi uh, system uh, species? That I, I think is just super super compelling, and uh, it also kind of it's a bit zeitgeist in the sense that we just had the um, reveal for the, the the web telescope and and you saw all those galaxies out there and there's got to be life out there somewhere and, and I, I feel like it would be amazing if at least you know in in our lifetimes if we can make you know peaceful contact peaceful I love that peaceful contact um, not trying to avoid uh, you know Ender's game here uh, for for our world thank you Kuhn for being with us here today. I'm looking forward to continuing the conversation with you. Uh, Thank you. It's been a pleasure. Thanks for listening to another episode of the Game Changers podcast. Special thanks to our guest, Kuhn Gao. It was insightful to hear how Kuhn's path in solving a day-to-day problem in his own life led to the founding of Crunchyroll, how he made key business decisions with the available data around him and trusted his gut as a founder, and how he is now moving on to tackle making the world a smaller place with gaming in a positive way. If you like what you heard, be sure to write a review, like, and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. If you also like reading up on deep dives on the gaming industry, sign up for our weekly newsletter at convoy.vc. Have a great week, everyone.